All right. We are ready. Ready this evening for our continued study in Deuteronomy. Tonight we begin Deuteronomy 9. Probably will not finish the entire chapter tonight, but that's fine because really the the content, the topic where we begin in chapter 9 uh, doesn't really come to an end until the middle of chapter 10. So we'll get 9 and 10 next time, merging the two. But please do turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. And it's always a wonderful time to study the Word of God because we're told in Psalm 119 that your your Word you've hidden in our hearts that I might not sin against you. We're also told that uh, your Word is the lamp, is a lamp to my feet, and it is a light to our path. And so this is one of the reasons why we spend time in the Word of God is that we have the maturity to grow spiritually so that we can live a spiritual life that is honoring to God. And it also is a a guide to us, guides us in our life and guides us on our paths, which is essentially the same thing. So let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation. It's our opportunity for uh, preparing ourselves for the uh, message tonight, which is essentially chapter 9. So let's close our eyes, bow our heads and close our eyes, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dear Holy Father, we're thankful for Moses' review for us of Israel's history, particularly the part of the first generation that came out of Egypt, and then as he is teaching the second generation. We pray, Father, that as we read this, we will not be critical or judgmental of Israel and the difficulties that they had, the challenges that they faced, because we face many that we could say are similar to us. So, Father, we ask that God the Holy Spirit would help us to make the proper applications to what we're going to read tonight. And we ask that he would also help us to focus and concentrate so that as we study the Word of God, that it will assist us to live each day for your honor and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're in Deuteronomy 9, and we have this. I kind of like to go through these outlines so that we know where we're going. And this is the New American, or the uh, Nelson Study Bible outline. And you'll notice that the third point here, the first point is prologue, chapter 1, 1 through 5. The second point is a review of Israel's history, chapter 1, verse 6, to chapter 4, verse 43. And then we have the third point, which is the law, the promises, and the covenant community. It begins in the last part of chapter 4, beginning in verse 44, and it ends chapter 11, 32. And so we are closing the end of this third point, the law, the promises, and the covenant 
community. Now, tonight, as we look at chapters 6 through 11, these are the great commands and the warnings. And we see this in chapters 6 through 11. And we have covered chapter 6.1 here is the command to love the Lord. In chapter 6, we have seen holy war in chapter 7. Last week, we read through and studied a warning against a spirit or like a better attitude of independence or neglect. So the spirit of independence from God's provision, God's plan, it brings an attitude of neglect. And that was chapter 8. Tonight, we are going to press on here with point 4, a warning against a spirit of self-righteousness. Chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 11. And in order to finish this uh, great commands and warnings, we'll finish it with chap- the finished of chapter 10, beginning in verse 12 through 11.32. And that's going to be a concluding exhortation to total commitment to the Lord. So we have these points that we could say that are part of chapters 6 through 11. So tonight in chapter 9, the great commands and warnings, chapter 6 through 11. And here we are, a warning against the spirit of self-righteousness. And it's going to be broken down in, first of all, the conquest of Canaan, not due to Israel's righteousness. And we'll see that in verses uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Secondly, we'll see the remainder of this, this main point, the warning against the spirit of self-righteousness. So point B here under B, under 4, is a reminder of Israel's rebe- rebellious history. And this is 9-7 through 10-11. Breaking this down a little bit more for us, we're going to see, first of all, the golden calf. And that is just one of the many problems that the Exodus generation encountered and had and produced. So the golden calf is 9, 7 through 21 The conquest of uh, Canaan is the review uh, that Moses gives in 1.6. And then it's a reminder of Israel's rebellious history beginning in 9.7. So that's where we find the golden calf. And then that takes us from 9 through 7.21. And then second, we'll see other rebellious incidents in uh, 9.22-24. I don't actually think we'll arrive in point two because the the history and the expression that Moses provides for us in verses 1 through 6 and then 7 through 21 probably going to fill our time tonight. So let's open your Bibles if you haven't already and let's read verses 1 through 6. Here. O Israel, and this is our word Shema. And it's not just a call for them to hear. The word, very often, it can be described or translated, listen, hear, and then it includes obey. So we could say any one of those three, hear, O Israel, or obey Israel. You are to cross over the Jordan today. Now, we'll see that it's not going to occur that day, but it means that it is imminent. It is coming. It is at hand for them. So, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Cities, great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, 
whom you know and of whom you heard it said, Who can stand before the descendants of Anak? 3. Therefore, understand today. And this word today here links with the first today, meaning this is their current history. This is what God is providing for them. It's their present and their soon to be their future. Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Verse 4, Do not think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 6, Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Uh, Some of the other English translations use the term stubborn. I think even a better one is you're an obstinate people. They simply don't uh, listen, they don't hear, and they're not obedient very often. But you'll notice that he says that twice. It's not because of your righteousness. This is not a reward for your conduct is another way of understanding this. All right. The first three verses here. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today. Well, it wasn't going to be that day. As a matter of fact, it was going to be when Joshua leads them. And that's probably going to be more than a month because we know that once Moses is taken up on Mount Nebo and he dies, there's going to be at least 30 days of mourning for him. So we know that the the phrase today is uh, not something that is a timing word, but it is something that's saying it's going to happen. It's imminent. It's in your immediate future. And they are to go in to dispossess nations, greater and mightier mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven. Now, when Moses says this, uh, he's not trying to frighten, frighten them, but he's simply saying that this is going to occur. And, of course, then he's going to say that the reason that they're going to be able to conquer these nations and take these fortified cities is because God is going to do it. God is their provider, he's their protector, and he's their guide. They are a people, verse 2, great and tall, the descendants of Anakim. And we know from our studies that Anak, which we'll see here in the rest of this verse, was one of the uh, mighty people. They were giants. And it says, whom you know and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the the descendants of Anak? Anak was a giant. We don't know precisely how tall they were. We know that some of them were at least eight, some nine, some ten. But Anak, the the word Anak we've studied in the past, is the word for neck. And what this tells us is that they probably were a big, strong people, and they had a huge neck. And they were known as the necks, the Anakim. Verse 3 says, 
Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. There was not going to be anyone who could stand uh, against Israel because there's going to be this consuming fire that's going to lead them. And they've seen this, the consuming fire. They've not only seen it every night that led them across the wilderness, but they, they saw it on Mount Sinai. So they know, they understand the imposingness of this fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. What we really do understand here is that uh, the people were going to cross over the Jordan. Now, some might ask, well, it was a great feat for them to be able to ford the Jordan during the harvest time, during the, uh, not the harvest time, but the springtime. But it wasn't because God made a path for them. And so we see this history of God providing, God providing, God providing. So just a few points here. Moses remembered the people's shock when they heard the original report of the 12 spies concerning the size, the strength, and the number of the inhabitants of Canaan. And you may remember that. We studied that in Numbers 13. The reconnaissance team goes from the Negev, the south, all the way up to where the tribe of Dan will eventually find themselves near Mount Hermon. And so when they heard of the report that the reconnaissance team brought back, they said, yes, it's a, it's a land full of milk and honey. In other words, just great production. But there's a lot of giants up there, a lot of fortified cities that we're just probably not prepared to take. And so that neglect of God's promises or their disobedience caused them to have 38 years wandering in the desert. We see that he did not want them to be surprised. Again, Moses doesn't doesn't want the second generation to go into the land and see giants again, giants and fortified cities. He didn't want them to underestimate the enormity of the task that lay before them. Therefore, he emphasizes that from a purely military and human point of view, their victory was impossible. And they had gained a terrifying, these Anakim, these giants, the enemy, had superior strength. They had fortifications, large cities with high walls, experience, and they had numbers. And they had gained a terrifying reputation. But Moses says that the Israelites said that the Israelites had asked, who, who can stand up against the Anakites? Well, he also had told them that they were not going to be a problem. So though the Canaanites had all these things in their favor. They were doomed before the battles began. And just as the de- and just as in the desert, the Lord went before the Israelites in a pillar in a pillar of cloud and of fire. So now, he, meaning God, would go before the Israelite army as a devouring fire to destroy their enemies. This principle is stated in Proverbs 21, 31. Let's turn there. Proverbs 21, verse 31. It says, The horse is prepared for the bat, for the day of battle. In other words, and I think the horse is prepared is simply a figure of speech for weapons of battle. So you can prepare yourselves for the day of battle. But deliverance, the victory, comes from the Lord, is of the Lord. And that's what Moses is trying to tell Israel. 
The principle is stated here. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. But God's people could not remain passive. They they would still have to be prepared. They would have to cross the river, and they would have to encounter the enemy. In faith, they had to begin the battle with the strength of the Lord, and God would provide as he had promised. God would fight for them. God has told them in Exodus 11:14 that he would go before them, that he would fight for them. And we saw in Deuteronomy 1:30, Deuteronomy 1:30, he said, "The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you, according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes." And so we have these promises that God would fight for them. Chapter 7, Deuteronomy 7, verse 24, says much the same. Chapter 7, verse 24. And he will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their name from from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. So these are the promises that Israel has been given by God. The application that we have here from these first three verses, we read about Israel, we study their history, and we learn from their experiences because the principles apply to us. We might have daunting challenges before us, but we must trust in the Lord, realizing that he will fight for us. We have problems God has solutions. He will solve our problems as we trust in him. And that's something we need to understand every day because every day we encounter some difficulty, something that might be disappointing, something that is depressing. But God has the solution. We need to trust him. Verse 4, 4, 5, and 6. Do not think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out, the Canaanites, before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out. And he's causing them to depart from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you. And he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in this we see God's faithfulness. God keeps his promises. And then these three verses say almost the same thing. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess, because of your righteousness. For you are a stiff naked, stick, a stiff necked people. You are stubborn. The word itself actually means severe. It means hard. It can even be translated, you're a difficult people. I like obstinate. That's the way, the word I would use. So just some points here, or at least some commentary. Verses uh, 4 through 6. After experiencing the magnificent victories of the conquest, it would have been easy for the Israelites who had become proud. It would have been even easier for them to have become spiritually proud after mediating, meditating on the divine favor God gave them in these victories. In each of these three verses, Moses warns against the danger of developing a self-righteousness, a self-righteous spirit by telling them that their victories were not a result of their own righteousness uh, or their the specialness of their people. In fact, Moses gave three reasons why Israel would be victorious in the conquest. First, the wickedness of these nations We read that in verses 4 and 5. Their wickedness was so great that it demanded God's judgment. 
He is the God of Israel, but he is also the God of all nations. When we read that he is the God of of Israel, that doesn't mean that he does not also expect certain uh, conduct from other nations. And he has created them. He places kings on uh, thrones. And so he is also the, uh, the God of other nations. They simply aren't the same special type of nation that Israel was. But these nations are all accountable to God. Secondly, God would give Israel victory because he has sworn this to the patriarchs. In other words, he says, it's not because uh, of your righteousness. It's because I made a promise. It's his character, the character that uh, the uh, promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thirdly, the Lord was giving the land as a pure gift of grace. It wasn't because of Israel's righteousness. They were an obstinate, a stubborn, unresponsive people. Later, Moses is going to state that the Israelites actually deserve to be destroyed because of their disobedience, their negligence of God. Rather than blessed with the gift of the, of the land, they had been disobedient. And they deserved to be destroyed themselves. Thus, Israel should never develop a self-righteous attitude because of her victories in the conquest. Those victories would not be due to Israel's righteousness, but to her enemy's wickedness. So God's promise and God's grace are what is going to bring them victories. And the application for us is the same. We aren't blessed because we are a great people. We're not blessed because we have such great righteousness. We fail very often. And God in his grace and in his mercy still blesses us. And so as we, again, as we study the history of Israel, we can put ourselves in their their footsteps because we have the same problems, the same difficulties. And now let's move to verse 7 through verse 17. Uh, This is a reminder of Israel's rebellious history. Uh, 9, 7 through 10, 11. uh, We're going to see, first of all, the golden calf in verses 7 through 21, chapter 9. Verse 7, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against God. Verse 8, Also in Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry and inserted here, angry enough with you to have destroyed you. When I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, which the Lord made, which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread or drank, drank water. Then the Lord delivered me, then the Lord delivered me. Two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. Verse 11. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And I think I'll stop there. Uh, we can pick up verse 12 just after we go through a couple observations. First of all, remember, it says, do not forget how you provoked. And the word here for provoked in verse 7 is God is, is not provoked, uh, but 
these words are used for us to understand his actions. We could probably say that he was it, he was moved. He was moved to certain actions. The Lord your God to wrath. And again, we've studied this uh, in the past. We know that God is not going to get angry. He is perfect happiness. But we understand his wrath as an expression of his his justice. So the Lord, your God, you moved him to his to justice in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Their rebellion was they just failed to have faith. They, verse 8. Also in Horeb, this is Mount Sinai. So he's tell, teaching them about the first generation, but also many of them had seen this as well because they were younger than 20. Also in Mount Sinai, you moved the Lord to justice so that the Lord was angry, was he was moved to action. Enough with you to have destroyed you. Verse 9. When I went up into the mountain to receive the, the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, and you will see that this is a symbol of the covenant, the, the tablets. Uh, there is a requirement on Israel, and they're coming from this tablets. But God has made a promise. And so he's going to keep his part of the covenant but the question is, will Israel? So you were, he received, I went up and received the, the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, which the Lord made with you. Then I stayed on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights. I neither ate bread. This is lechem. Uh, lechem is bread, but it's also food. And I think maybe food is a little better translation. He didn't eat food nor drank water. Now, a person can't go more than about three days without water and survive. Therefore, we have two options here. Either God supernaturally preserved Moses during these 40 days, or there is an understanding that he fasted to the extent that he could almost say that he had almost no water or no food. Now, this is causes a controversy with many theologians. Does the number 40, should it be taken literally or should it be taken figuratively? And there's probably excellent arguments on both sides. But I believe that we should take this literally, that... God supported Moses. He's up on the mountain. He didn't carry with him 40 days worth of food and 40 days of water. It is possible that Moses just fast for 40 days because we know that this is uh, has been done by other individuals. But I think that the sense of this is that not only is God providing him with these tablets of stone, and it's a very special period of time, but it's also a time when Moses is illustrating the the specialness of this situation. And he's not only going to fast, but he's also not going to be drinking. Verse 10. Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of assembly. The finger of God. This is, uh, I've often thought, was a great phrase. It's a way of saying that God gave the law to Moses and Israel. Did Moses or did God's finger write the words on the stones well i believe that this is again a figure of speech the finger of god 
But this is an anthropomorphism describing God having a finger. But God places the words on the stone tablets. How he does it, Moses simply sees the impressions on the stone. So he says it was by the finger of God. But we know that God doesn't have a a finger. So this truly is an anthropomorphism. One way or the other, God initiated the covenant with his people and gave to Moses the law. This is a wonderful expression. I think uh, the, the finger of God means that this is absolutely from God, even though uh, God doesn't have a finger. Verse 11, And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, you know, you might expect to say that uh, Moses had lost about, you know, 40 pounds of, of body weight. But, of course, it's repeated. And I think the repetition of it tells us that it's still can be taken literally. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And again, notice that the number 40 is re- is repeated, giving a clear impression that this, I think, is a literal period. Also, it was a very lengthy period because the Israelites stopped waiting for Moses to return. And, of course, we don't know. Could have been 10 days, I suppose. Could have been 20, 30. But 40 days would certainly cause them to wonder. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here. For your people, I always like this, it's your people. It's not my people now, Moses, it's your people. Your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have acted corruptly. Well, who brought them out of Egypt? It was God. God has told them time after time after time that he's the one that brought them out. But this is an interesting approach to Moses, that uh, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded image. I can't begin to imagine Moses' disbelief in the action of Israel. Yes, being disobedient, but making a mold idol? I wonder if Moses is wondering the whereabouts of his brother, Aaron, at this point. But anyhow, it says that you brought them out of Egypt. And I think this is part of Moses' testing as well. 13. Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me saying, I have seen this people and indeed they are a obstinate, stiff-necked, stubborn people. Of course, God knew the conduct of this generation prior to its occurring. We sometimes say that God looked down the corridors of history But God knew all history without learning it. So he doesn't need to look to see it. Here we read an anthropomorphism again, saying that he had seen this people. God does not have eyes, nor does he look. God knows all events of history and anything else that is knowable at once. He doesn't need to learn. Moses writes for us to understand, not to describe the progressive knowledge of God. And there are those who would say that God did learn, but that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's heresy. Verse 14, let me alone, God says, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. All right. This section and what will follow beginning in verse 22 are a well-argued commentary on the meaning of the statement, you are an obstinate, a stiff-necked people. There is absolutely no doubt 
that Israel was. The emphasis, the emphatic exhortation, remember this and never forget, is something that begins verse 1, but it underscores the absurdity of Israel ever supposing that the hand, that the land was given to them as a reward for their righteousness. Moses used one incident. He's using this one incident from their past, the worship of the golden calf, uh, the calf that was made of gold. He uses it to illustrate that it, the Israelite history has nearly always been one of rebellion. Uh, they find it difficult. Israel was God's people, and it caused them very often to be prideful. Even after they uh, are established in the nation as a kingdom under Saul, David, Solomon, and other kings, uh, they were an arrogant people. And I think obstinate people is can be used here. But they were... A rebellion people. They rebelled against God's grace. This incident, perhaps more than any other incident until that time, illustrates Israel's sinfulness on the one hand and God's grace on the other. So the application that I think we can make in our lives, our, fa- our failures also illustrate the grace and the mercy of God for us. If we were God's If we were God, you know, God for a day, we would not demonstrate his love, patience, grace, mercy, and compassion to other people, and maybe not even to ourselves. God's character is beyond our comprehension of how in the world he can still love us, how he can still uh, be patient with us, how he can still bless us and provide for us. God knows the struggle that we encounter every day. And he reminds us through his word that he understands and that he is our helper. Turn to Psalm 121. We can learn so much from the Psalms. Psalm 121. This is what's known as one of the Psalms of Ascent. Pilgrim's returning to Jerusalem for one of the three pilgrimage feasts. And as they approached, they would look up and see the the city and see the temple. I will lift up my eyes to the hills, to Zion is another way of understanding this. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. And this is our word, Aetzer, which is used essentially of God as we work through many of these psalms. From whence comes my help? And why does he say, I'm looking towards the temple? That's because where God dwelled between the angels that hovered over the ark. I lift up my eyes to the health, the hills, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. That is a figure of speech. He made everything. He will not allow your foot to move. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel, who guards Israel, shall neither slumber nor sleep. He's always alert, but he doesn't need to be alert because he already knows what's going to happen. Five, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and evermore. Psalm 121. Just a great psalm. Wonderful psalm. All right, back to Deuteronomy 9. 
So that's the application there, uh, God's provision for us. Now, just a few more thoughts here. While Moses was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai and was therefore completely dependent on God, what were the Israelites doing? Well, they'd given up on Moses, and in reality, they'd given up on God as well. They were feasting. While Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, Tablets of the Covenant, by the finger of God, the people were breaking several of those uh, covenants uh, or commandments that were telling them to worship God, not some idol. As the Lord had given the covenant to Moses, the people had become corrupt and turned quickly away. Even God himself proclaimed that the people were stiff-necked. They were, they were stubborn. Of course, Moses had, exper- had experienced this same obstinance. He's uh, living it, literally, in leading Israel. Their rebellion was so great that they deserved to be destroyed. And the nation started again with Moses. As a matter of fact, God offers that to Moses. I believe, and I've said this many times, that God knows that he's made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that these people are going to be their descendants. And so I think that this is more of a test for Moses. Uh, God says, you brought them out of Egypt. They're your people. But Moses knows that he didn't do that. He knows that God has done that. But the question is then, does Moses mediate for Israel? Had Moses matured in his role of leader of Israel that he would, in fact, defend Israel, and he does. Verse 15 through 21. I think we can possibly make this. Verse 15. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tablets of covenant of the covenant were in my two hands. Verse 16. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God, had made for yourself a mold calf, You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. Then I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands and broke them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as the first 40 days. And I fell down before the Lord. And as as the first 40 days and nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water. Because of all your sins which you committed, in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Verse 19. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me, heard me. And the better word there is probably that he answered my prayer. Although God knew ahead of time what he was going to do here. But the Lord listened to me At that time also, and the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took your sin, your sinful thing, we might say, the calf, which you had made and burned it with fire and crushed it and ground it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust into the brook that descended from the mountain. All right, there's... Some comments I'd like to make, and I'd like to also go back and review that event in Numbers Numbers 30. But I don't want to hurry this. I don't want to rush this. So let's uh, stop right here. We'll say we stopped at verse 14. We'll come back and pick this up in verse 15. And again, I think it's important for us to realize that as we read the book of Deuteronomy or Numbers, or any other book, as a matter of fact, and we read the history of Israel, it's not just a book that's tried to, that is designed to tell us the history of Israel. It's 
an opportunity for us to see ourselves. We sometimes are, we wonder. I mean, I, growing up, going through this probably in more detail, when I was in college, reading through the Old Testament, I often thought, I wonder, I wonder how in the world Israel could do this uh, with God's marvelous provision. Well, I'd hate to say it, but there's been plenty of failures in my own life uh, that I could easily see myself doing the same thing. And so that's the importance of what of reading history and learning from history. Israel was no different than anyone else. And they were probably even more moral than uh, most, but they were arrogant and they were disobedient. And so we need to learn from their lives and from uh, what God has provided for us in recording this history for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have this history. We're thankful for Moses' explanation of what he has experienced. Not only what he's experienced with Israel, but he's experienced with you. And we're thankful, Father, for your extraordinary character, a character that is beyond our understanding. But we're thankful that that same character applies to us. And we're thankful each and every day for your grace and your mercy. We're thankful, Father, for the opportunity to praise you, to worship you, to study and learn more about you. But we're certainly thankful, Father, for your greatest gift to us, and that is your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for his sacrificial death on the cross, paying the guilt for our sins. And even though we continue to sin, we are able to uh, simply uh, confess those sins because the Lord Jesus Christ has already paid for the guilt on the cross for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.